Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, When Kings Go Forth to Battle. As one Hebrew year would flow into another, the commencement of each new year would see the kings of the nations going to battle against each other. But get this, and this is truly exciting. Throughout Israel's history, this time of year provides the backdrop for the most epic moments in the grand and glorious battle of the ages, all culminating in the pinnacle of the war, the God-man Jesus upon a cross. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. This particular message is so far above my head, uh, and the more I've engaged with the concepts in this message, the more I felt unprepared, and, and then Sunday just comes whipping along. Uh, this is a, I mean, it was such a powerful study this whole past week, and you have to realize the subject of this message, I was studying it before I even realized that we were entering into the very week of the calendar that I'm going to be discussing in this message. Okay, we are going to be talking about a certain stretch of time in the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. And it's extremely significant all throughout Hebrew history. God doesn't accidentally do things. And all throughout history, there is a cyclical pattern uh, to his calendar. And in certain times of year, certain things happen. I mean, we all know that. Spring comes this time of year every year. Well, there's a lot of other things that happen this time of year every year. And they're very, very significant spiritually to us. And I think most of us are, we know enough to be dangerous in regards to this. That, well, yeah, I mean, this is... This is Passover. This is when Jesus died and Jesus rose again. But I want you to realize how significant this is when you look at the Hebrew calendar and everything that took place to prepare us to recognize this season. This is, this is no small thing in the kingdom of heaven. Now when we look back at the Old Testament, we can say, whoa, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Well, what's he doing there? Jesus. All scripture testifies of Jesus Christ. Now, that is easier said than proven. I shouldn't even say it that way. I should say it's easily proven if you have time. We have nine weeks to do it. It's hard to just make the comment. It sounds pat to most of you in this audience. Like, everything has to do with Jesus? Yeah, everything. Okay, so you're going to tell me Song of Solomon. It has to do with Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that. You're going to tell me Proverbs have to do with Jesus? Yeah, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that the temple of God has to do with Jesus. The sacrifices have to do with Jesus. I'm going to tell you that the manna that came down from heaven had to do with Jesus. The rock in the wilderness had to do with Jesus. I'm going to say that the high priest in Israel had to do with Jesus. The king, the anointed ones of Israel, have to do with Jesus. Everything has to do with Jesus or shows a contrast to Jesus. It's extraordinary. Well, Most of us would not think that the calendar of the Hebrew nation would have anything to do with Jesus. Just a calendar. I mean, you look at the calendar and this date pops up and you're not thinking Jesus. Well, to the Hebrews, there was an incredible language that was being laid out in the calendar. Okay? Now, I've known this to a certain degree. And when I accidentally stumbled into it this past week, and I began to study it, and I began to read all sorts of Jewish writings on certain times of year in, in, the, in the calendar. They didn't even know what they were telling me. 
All I saw was Jesus, 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 Jesus. Now, that's what I'm tuned to do anyways, is to see Jesus, 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 Jesus. But it's really amazing coming to the Jews and having them describe their calendars and their holy days and the way that they celebrate them, and to have them literally tell me, Jesus, 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 and they don't even acknowledge Jesus. It's quite extraordinary, it really is. Let's lay a foundation just in prayer uh, for this message. This is, uh, this is a very special message in a very special time of year. Father, I ask that you would come forth in power and that you would make our understanding work, that we would comprehend, that we would grab a hold of the things of heaven, that we would see what you have done, that we would behold the living God, that we would stand back in awe and wonder as we see our Jesus in all things. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. When kings go forth to battle. Isn't that a great title? I love this title. Now, I did a podcast for Moody Radio. It was quite a while ago. It was called When Kings Go Forth to Battle. Okay, Leslie said, haven't you already given a message on that? No, 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 that was a podcast. And it was completely different than this. You see, there's this one scripture, and let me read it for you. In 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, and it says, And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. Okay, now in that context is actually when it says David, who had always gone to battle after the year expired, okay? After the final month of the year, Adar, had finished, then it was the time for the kings to go forth to battle. Okay, now in the Hebrew calendar, Adar would be like our equivalent of December, but it's not at the same time of year. Adar is basically mid to late February to mid to late March, And so when the year of the Hebrew is ending, it's basically our spring. It just began, okay? And it's called the month of Nisan, okay? So, and it came to pass after the year was expired, most of us are thinking December. So December 31st, and we're thinking January 1st. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about basically the end of March. And it says, this is the time that kings go forth to battle. Now, in the context of 2 Samuel... David, who had always gone out to battle, one year did not go out to battle. Remember what year that was? He stayed home. And unfortunately, it didn't turn out very good for poor David, uh, who that was when he fell into the trap of Bathsheba. Uh, And, you know, so that was what my podcast was about. It's like, you know what? We need to be going to battle. And we never let down our sword. It's when we retreat from battle and we say, I could take this season off that we end up in serious problems. That's not what this message is about. Okay, now you'll notice I emphasize the words the time when kings go forth to battle. That's what this message is about. It's about the time when kings go forth to battle. Okay, now I want you to see if you can see Jesus throughout this message. I'm going to hide it at first, but I want you to labor to see it. There's a time of year when kings, kings, you know a king, go forth to battle. Okay, now... The other thing I want you to see in this is that it came to pass after the year was expired. So after Adar had concluded, Nisan begins. And that for us is going to be translated into late March. To, and so that's spring for us. That's what we understand in our calendar. So this is our first month, Nisan. The first month, the time when kings go forth to battle. In Exodus 12, it says, This month, speaking of Nisan, shall be your beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay? Now, I know that as of right now, this doesn't mean a lot to you. But I just want you to realize, as we begin to unpack this, all that God has revealed at the beginning of the year, when all things begin anew, it's quite profound. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that I'm going to go through here. Okay? The month of Nisan is the time of creation. Okay, so we could say the first seven days of creation would have been Nisan 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Okay, that means creation actually started on what we would term a Sunday, the first day of the week. And then the seventh day would have been the Sabbath. Okay, the first seven would have been creation. Now, you have to realize, when you think about the next seven, Nisan 14 is what's known as the Passover. Okay? So you need to realize, when you add another seven, you have a new creation. Okay, it's, it's quite profound. But it's the time of creation. Earth was created in Nisan. That's what the Jews would all tell you. Yeah, this is the time of creation. Of course, this is the time when new growth comes up. It makes sense. But then, Earth recreated. You know when Noah exits the ark onto dry land? Well, listen. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. What's the beginning of the new earth? After it was destroyed in the flood, Noah walks out literally in Nisan, the time when kings go forth to battle, same time. It's also the time of birth. Now look at what the Hebrews would say. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all were born in the month of Nisan. And get this, they actually would say, and all of them died in the month of Nisan. Isn't that intriguing? Isaac, it is said that he was born on Passover. He was bound to be sacrificed on the altar by Abraham with a knife raised over his head on Passover. And then he died on Passover. Isn't that extraordinary? Isaac, huh? It is the time of sacrifice. Isaac was bound in this exact month. Now, not just any old time during the month, but in very specific days during the month did these things happen. You have to realize it was on Mount Moriah, on the Passover, that he was bound. The firstborn son was bound. And then as Abraham raised his knife over Isaac to sacrifice his firstborn, God says, halt, don't do it. And Abraham looked off to the side and there was a ram caught in the thicket that became the sacrifice and said, instead, it's called the intercessory ram. The ram that took the hit instead of Isaac. Quite amazing. When did that take place? In Nisan. Not just any day during Nisan. I'm, I'm guessing you're going to start catching the drift here. And it wasn't just done in any place in the month of Nisan. It was on Mount Moriah where the temple of God was built. It is the time of intercession. The ram caught in the thicket. The paschal lamb intervening at Passover. You will die unless a ram, I'm sorry, unless an unblemished lamb, a paschal lamb, is killed and that blood is spread over your doorposts. Well, that's called intercession. That lamb stood in the gap for the nation of Israel. Esther interceding on behalf of the Jewish nation. You know when that happened? Well, that was Nisan. Just wait. I'm going to unpack a little more about that too. But she literally risked her life and she said, if I perish, I perish. And she stood in the gap to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people that were set to be annihilated. It is the time of freedom and emancipation. 
Egyptian slavery was annulled. What month? Well, that's Nisan. It's the very first month. That's why Passover by the Jews is celebrated in the month of Nisan. You know when the Jews celebrated the first Passover? The same day Jesus was killed. Egyptian slavery was annulled in the very month of Nisan, but not just any day. It was the same day Isaac was bound. Same day Isaac was born and died. These are not accidents, is the point. Haman's plot was exposed and foiled. Isn't that interesting? Mordecai catches glimpse of the fact that what Haman is doing, tells Esther. Well, then Esther intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel, and guess what happens? Haman's plot to destroy the people of Israel is foiled in the month of Nisan. It is the time of judgment upon the firstborn. Okay, now this is for the Ellerslie students, you'll have a full appreciation of this. Okay, it's the time of judgment upon the firstborn. Now remember, if I say, what's your location? In Christ. And then if I say, where's the old man? He's dead, and why? Because when Christ died, and you're in Christ, the old man was crucified with Christ. The old man is the firstborn. The old man is the first king, like Saul. He's the firstborn, like Esau. He's the firstborn, like Adam. And you were in Adam, but now you have translated into a new kingdom. You're in Christ. And Nisan is the month in which the firstborn is judged. Okay, now I know that sounds strange. But the wrath of God didn't just come upon Jesus. I want you to realize it came upon the firstborn. Think about Egypt. The death angel in Egypt striking down what? The firstborn. Is that an accident? No, the firstborn is judged in the month of Nisan. Haman, I don't know how much I should go into this, but Haman, who is the Agagite, is the great descendant of Esau. Esau, who then had the uh, Amalek, his grandson, and then Amalek, the king of the Amalekites, was Agag. And so those that descended out of Agag, Haman, those that were against the Jews, well, guess who is hung in the month of Nisan? Uh huh. That's right. The same exact time that your old man was being crucified. Any accident there? I think it's extraordinary. Saul dies in battle. When? Well, he's in battle. It's when the kings go forth to battle. He's against the Philistines in battle. At the same time, get this, at the same time David is slaughtering the Amalekites. The same exact time of year that David is slaughtering the Amalekites, the great king of Israel, the second born, is destroying the flesh. At the same time, Saul, the old man, the first king of Israel, is going to his death. Same time of year. It is the time of first fruits. It's the harvest time. The barley turns green at Passover day. That's when they begin harvesting the barley. The barley harvest, it's the food for animals. You have at the beginning of the harvest season, you have barley. And then at the end, you have wheat. And you have the barley harvest. Remember what Jesus is? He is literally the food, of, the, the food of God come down. And who's eating him? Animals. We as the Gentiles are called dogs. In other words, he's the food for animals. And it's the exact same day as Passover. This is the inauguration of the barley harvest. It is the time of purity. This exact time of year in Nisan, there's a call for a fast from leaven, from yeast. 
There is a complete removal of it. The Jews will scour their homes and get out every crack they'll go into and make sure there's not any leaven in the entire house. Well, that's the time of year we've come to. See, lamb without blemish or spot. When you are sacrificing a lamb, it has to be pure lamb. It has to be without blemish or without spot. And no leaven allowed for seven days. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the first month and the 14th day of the month at evening, which by the way is the same day that Jesus died, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Isn't that amazing? This is the Jewish calendar. God is very specific on his days. But it just happens to be on the 14th day that bread must be eaten. Hmm? Bread must be eaten, but it's eaten without leaven. In other words, it's not like your normal bread. This is a different sort of meal. This is a bread without any impurity. And what else are they eating? They're eating an unblemished lamb of sacrifice. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And he is called the manna that came down from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. I love this stuff. It is the time of the lamb. Well, that makes sense. Why would we call it the time of the lamb? Well, if you're a lamb, guess what? The calendar's coming around, and if you talk and you're a lamb, you're like, uh-huh, here it comes. Well, Passover's coming. The lambs are set apart four days before Passover. And, you know, we're very close to the time when the lambs would have been set apart. Jesus very likely would have been coming in on the donkey on the day when the lamb was being presented, taken apart, separated out for inspection. Then it's inspected for four days. This is the time of the lamb. Lambs from all over Israel are being separated out for each family. And then they're inspected for four days to make sure that there is not one blemish or spot upon them. And then they're sacrificed. Instead of you being sacrificed, a lamb is going to be sacrificed. The Passover, as sacrifice, as food, and as shelter. That, that animal is used, and you need its blood to preserve you. And you need it for food. You're supposed to eat it. And it's also shelter. You are in a home, and that blood is placed on the home. And so, therefore, you have three different dimensions that are coming out of this lamb, which just happen to be very, very similar, don't they, to what we have in Jesus Christ. They're exactly the same. How about we say it that way? It is the time of the Gentiles. Now, remember last week I had you raise your hand if you were a Gentile. I'm sorry, if you were a Jew, and we had two people. Raise your hand if you were a Jew in here. Now now we have one. Uh, so, Oh, two. Oh, good. We're, we're making it to two again. Okay, so we have two this week again. That means the rest of us are outside the commonwealth of Israel. We're aliens to those promises, okay? That's just, you know, the deal we have here. However, look at what time of year this is. This is the time of the Gentiles. Now, I know that sounds strange. And to the Jews, they'd say, what are you talking about, Eric? I'm saying, I mean, let's go back in time to the book of Ruth. You know when Ruth arrived... With Naomi in Bethlehem, that's the city they came to. They came because they heard that there was bread in Israel. There had been a famine, but now there was bread in Israel. And Naomi, I'm sorry, and Ruth, a Gentile, the Moabitess, comes to Bethlehem when? At the start of the barley harvest. You know when that is? Uh-huh. That's when Ruth arrives. And guess when she is redeemed? 50 days later, which we know as Pentecost. 
That's literally the time. It's the harvest season. At the very end is the wheat harvest. And so in the Hebrew culture, when they are going through the wheat harvest, you know what they read? The book of Ruth. It's the time of the Gentiles. It's the time when the Gentiles are invited into the line of the king. Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem at the inception of the barley harvest. It is the time of a raised up tabernacle. Now what's interesting is the temple actually was inaugurated in the Feast of, of Tabernacles. But here we have the very first tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness. I think I have a scripture here. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So it's also the time of year when a tabernacle is raised up. Does that strike any uh, chords with you? It is the time of coronation, which means the crowning of a king. David was anointed king over Judah. Remember what is happening in the flow of events. Kings go forth to battle and the Philistines come against Israel. David, who was actually living in Philistia at the time, is rejected from the Philistian camp and he goes to Ziklag, which is where he was living. Meanwhile, he finds that his camp, Ziklag, has been burned to the ground. Meanwhile, the Philistines are marching against Saul. Saul is killed. In the fight against the Philistines, at the exact same time, David is racing after the Amalekites, slaughters them, returns back, an Amalekite comes to him, bearing Saul's crown, currying favor with Saul. David slays him, says, how dare you? You killed Saul? David then is anointed king. The exact same time, the Amalekites and the old man Saul are killed. And then what does David do? He steps into his kingdom. It is the time of war. Now, you should have figured that one out already. This is the season when the kings go forth to battle. But when you're thinking about lambs, when you're thinking about first fruits and barley, you don't think about war, do you? They don't all go together. Well, you know why kings go forth to battle in the spring? There's multiple reasons. But that's when all the harvest, the fields are awakened, and now there's plunder. You get the, so you don't have to do the planting, you just take the crop. It's not a bad strategy if you're a strong nation. And so this is the time when you want to come in and take land, when you want to claim the fruits of the other country's hard labor. It is a time of war. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when the kings go forth to battle, the spring, Nisan. God, in the midst of this season of going forth to battle. Okay, now I don't know if you've begun to pick up when we talk about the kings going forth to battle. I'm making a point here and just, I'm just trying to withhold my actual statement of it to let you sort of see it and get excited about it. Okay, I'll just say at least one little line to it. Our king went to battle. He did. Our king went to battle. Now, a strange way to build an army. God has a very strange way of building an army. Now, if God's going to go to battle, doesn't he need an army? I mean, if you're going to go to battle, you need an army. I mean, this just sort of goes without saying. You don't just declare as a king, let's go forth to battle, and then you have no army. Is that what you do? Wait till you study the way that God goes to battle. I mean, it's extremely odd. Okay, that's why I'm calling it a strange way to build an army. And God begins to prepare us for understanding his way of going to battle, back in the book of Judges here. So let's read this story. And the Lord said unto Gideon, 
The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Okay, now, Gideon, Israel is hanging on the ropes already. The Midianites have Israel right where they want them. They're weak. They're futile. Okay? I mean, Israel's backed up to a wall. Gideon rises up and he says, Hey, I'm willing to follow God and be an instrument of God to bring judgment on the Midianites. Okay, now remember what time of year this would be. Okay, this is in the spring. This is the time of battle. Okay, so we have God actually saying, the people that are with you, Gideon, yeah, too many. You have too many soldiers. I mean, what kind of general is going to say, yeah, we have too much strength. Yeah, you know what? If we go to battle like this, you're going to think you want it out of your own strength. Yeah, we can't do that. So let's cut down your army. Who does that? God, God does that. So it says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. Okay, and 22,000 of the people returned. 22,000 of them were afraid. And so when they were given leave, if you're afraid, get out of here. Mass exodus! God, you should have given a different, you know, idea of what it was. If any of you were, you know, born on this day of the year, go. You know, and then you're going to get a fractional amount. But this is extreme, 22,000 and 10,000 remained. Okay, we just lopped off almost our entire army. Now we're down to 10,000. We're already weak, God. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the Midianites have hundreds of thousands. This is not a good idea. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Yeah, we got 10,000. Way too much. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, and the number of those who lapped put their hand to their mouth was 300 men. Okay, so God's actually choosing the ones that go down and lap like a dog. Doesn't that sound like the way he chose us? And out of all the people, out of all the 10,000 that remained, only 300 did it that way. He excused all the rest, 9,700. He said, go home. God has eliminated the entire army of Gideon down to 300. What kind of plan is this? It's a strange way to build an army. Mm -hmm. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. That's a strange way to build an army. Wait till you see how God builds his. You see, there's some principal concepts I just want to walk through real quick. In Zechariah 4, 6, it says, Not by might nor by power. Not by the power of 32,700 or whatever. It would have been 32,000 that he started with, right? Yeah. 32,000 that he started with. Not by the the might of 32,000 Israeli soldiers. 
Not by the power of a host of trained army men. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the principle right there. I don't win the same way that everyone else wins their battles. I don't need the arm of flesh to win my battles. God's saying, can I make that more clear to you? Then David said to the Philistines, this is David speaking to Goliath, you come to me with sword, with spear, and with a javelin. You come to me with might and with power. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of battle, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Then all this assembly shall know uh, he basically says, after I wipe you out and decapitate you, all this assembly shall note the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. God does not win his battles the same way everyone else does. Watch what God will do. God will come in the humblest form to destroy the mightiest opponent. A shepherd boy? with five smooth stones from the brook. Oh, that's intimidating. You don't know who empowers this little shepherd boy, do you? He comes in the name of the Lord of battles himself. God loves to do this. The strange battle strategy. Make yourself weak? Well, who's going to do that? Let's make ourselves weaker for battle. Who comes up with that strategy? Oh yeah, we're pretty strong right now. Let's get weak so we can go to battle. Hmm. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. When we see Jesus, when we behold our king, you know what we do? We become weak for him. We take our strength out of our life. We go into our pantry and we find our spikenards worth a year's wages. Even Judas, when he was watching this scene, said that money could have been used to be given to the poor. That's our mentality. We have 32,000 men to fight against the Midianites. And God breaks it open. He spills it out. He's like, what? We could have used that, God. You spend all that you have. You become weak, and then you'll know my strength. And he said to me, this is God speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's his pattern. He makes his army weak so that his strength will be made perfect in and through it. When you see Gideon's army take down the Midianites, guess what you say? Strength made perfect. Wow. Look what God did. No one in Israel was able to claim that they were the ones that brought about the great victory. They're the ones that just lapped like dogs. All they did was obey what God told them to do. And everyone down in the Midianite camp, which by the way included Amalekites too, are just killing themselves. They've gone crazy. God's in control of the battle. And then it says, Therefore most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He boasts in his weakness. What a strange thing to boast in. You see, when you know how God wins, you actually begin to cherish your weakness. It's like, you know what? I'm not very strong. Ah, I'm fit for battle. 
You know we're fit when we know how strong he is. And to get a glimpse of how weak you are is not a comfortable thing at first in your Christian walk, but it grows on you after a while. You begin to go, I can't do this, can I? And God looks at him and goes, no, you can't. In other words, I'm weak. And he goes, yeah, you are. And you're my chosen vessel. He brings down all the powers of earth and hell in this generation, in and through willing, weak vessels, little lambs. The strange three-day journey. Okay, now, if you look at the month of Nisan, there's three days marked in it, especially in the Christian calendar. Three days. Do you guys know what those three days are associated with? Jesus dies, and then there's three days. Okay, now, that three-day journey, by the way, is all throughout Scripture. In fact, this is just a sampling of it, by the way. This is extraordinary. There is a strange three-day journey that God is forecasting in the very Old Testament to create a foreshadow for that which is to come. It's a three-day journey. And this three-day journey is not a journey of joy and jubilation and ease. This is a journey of testing and trial. You see, when Gideon's army is being pared down in the month of Nisan, there's a test that is coming to the general. In this case, Gideon, do you trust me? Do you trust me? God, you just lopped off 22,000 of my men. I mean, this is already hard for me to go to battle. This is already a challenge for me. You just took away all my strength. And then he says, yeah, and you still have too many. And then he lops off 9,700 more. Leaves Gideon with 700 men. He says, nah, I think we're ready now. You can almost imagine that being three days, because that's exactly what happens in our lives. This three-day journey, and we can call it the strange three-day journey, is called the test of faith in Scripture. God calls you. He makes it clear what you are to believe. And then he says, now walk it. And what happens? All goes dark. Everything, God goes silent. What happened to him? He says, do you trust me? See, when all seems backwards, dark, and lost, why would God do this to us? There is something critical that is taking place. There is a greater removal of chaff in our life. There is a greater depth of trust that is being cultivated in us when all goes dark. Three days. Can you walk it? The three-day are-you-willing test. By the way, these stories all happen almost the exact same dates, all of them, the same three days. And I can't, you know, in this I would say they're slightly different, but I don't know all as far as how the calendar works in the Hebrew culture. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. God makes it clear this is a test. This is going to be a three-day test for Abraham, okay? And what time of year was this happening? Nisan. At the exact same time that we would have been seeing a three-day test happen all throughout the Hebrew culture, throughout history. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I don't know how you would respond to that. Isaac is the promised child. It's the child of his old age. It's supernatural that he even has him. Go offer him. 
as a burnt offering. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I don't know how you'd be doing that morning, but it says that Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then, I made it big for you just so you don't miss it, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. What a statement. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's an extraordinary story. It's a three-day test. It wasn't just that Abraham arose in the morning, walked up to an altar, and laid down his son. He had to walk this for three days. Could you imagine how many times in that journey he might stop his donkey and say, could we just hold it here for a second? All right, let's keep going. I, this is hard. Three days of knowing where he's headed. Three days of agony. Three days of darkness. Three days of obedience. Three days of faith. You walk it. Because he had to be tested. Ironically, so do you. You need a three-day test. It's a strange journey. The three-day will you buckle test. Not buckle your bell. This is like buckle under. It is so overwhelming. Will you stand? Are you going to be able to remain confident in your God? Even though all the natural realm is defying it. So this is from Flavius Josephus. And I read this when I did the provision for the impossible message. This is, Israel has been set free from the power of Egypt. Okay, they've had the Passover lamb. This is literally a three-day journey from Egypt to the Red Sea. They're at the edge of the Red Sea, and then suddenly the, the, the Egyptians come running after them with all their power. They're backed up into a corner. How are you doing about right now? Will you buckle? Now when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. But their multitude they drove them into an, but by their multitude they drove them into a narrow place. For the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen all armed. The, the Israelites have no armament. They have no weaponry. They have nothing. 
and they're backed into a corner with their women and children and their donkeys and their cattle. I mean, this isn't good. We've got a bad situation here. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between inaccessible precipices in the sea. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. When all goes dark, how do you respond? God has just delivered you. And what do you do? You're backed up after the three-day test to the Red Sea. Do you turn on the very one who has brought you deliverance and start throwing stones? You see, these guys weren't passing the three-day test. But look at Moses. It says, while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. That's what Moses was doing. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God. He said, it is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. Now, if you were to think through some of these other dark moments in history, okay, and I can think of one that went really dark, Nisan 14, right around A.D. 33, when all went dark, And listen to this line. It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. Flavius Josephus said, Thou art not ignorant. This is the same scene. Okay, This is at the edge of the waters of the Red Sea. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord. He's praying to him. That it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and of recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. And let it come quickly and manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people unto good courage and hope of deliverance who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. We are in a helpless place but still it is a place that thou possesses. Still the sea is thine. The mountains also that enclose us are thine, so that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them. And the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. That's Moses' response to the three-day test. Look at the army. It's weak. Look at the circumstances. They're in a narrow place, no escape. They have the mightiest military force on earth backing them up. They have no weapons. They have no defense. The only option they have is to surrender themselves back to old slavery. And what does Moses say? It is as good as madness to despair now. The same God who brought you up to this point will be faithful now. And you could say, but how? We're backed up to a sea. We have mountains enclosing us on both sides. You know what Moses' response is? Same God that delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh will deliver you again now. If he wants, he will open up this sea and make it dry land. If he wants, he will take these mountains and collapse them into the sea. If he wants, he will cause millions of Israelites to pick up and literally fly right now. How are you handling the three-day test? When it gets dark, 
How do you respond? The three-day bitter waters test. Right after they pass this test, God walks them through another three-day test. From the Red Sea, well, I'll just read it. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? we got another test here. They, they failed the first one. Now God says, Okay, I'll give you another test. Let's get this down. Okay? Three more days. Let's prove yourselves. Same God who delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians twice. Literally parted a Red Sea and you walked over on dry land. It's only been three days later. And guess what? They're now grumbling and complaining, we need water. And he cried unto the Lord, speaking to Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree. Huh. Listen closely to this. This is profound. Showed him a tree, which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he proved them. It's the concept of being tested. And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ears to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. You know the context for I am the Lord that healeth thee? Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals? It's that. It's a three-day test. A tree thrown into waters. The declaration that God is the one that heals. Huh. Interesting. The three-day, are you ready to try the impossible test? So now we have 40 years later exactly. Remember when all this happened that we just talked about with Moses? That was in the month of Nisan, right at Passover. All of that happened. That time, 40 years exactly to the same day. You have the, are you ready to try the impossible test? What's happened? Moses dies. Joshua takes the men and women of Israel into battle. I should say the men of Israel into battle. They cross the Jordan River. But listen to this. Pass through the host and command the people saying, prepare you victuals for within three days you shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess it. Same time of year. It's the time of battle. The time when kings go forth to battle. The three day but I can't go another step test. You're weak. Now, I want you to realize every single thing we're talking about fits the cross. I just don't know if you've seen it yet. Every single one of these three-day tests matches what Jesus walked through. The three-day, but I can't go another step test. Same time of year. In fact, you could argue that this is going to be the exact same days of the year. Now, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. That the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So the Amalekites have come into David's camp and taken his family. Does that sound familiar? The king's family has been taken by the Amalekites. Hmm. What's the king going to do? So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. So David went, he and 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Basor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 
for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. Everyone is exhausted. 200 of the men, these are warriors, literally in pursuit of their families, were so weak that they couldn't keep going. David and the other 400 were strong enough to just put one foot in front of the other. But they're going to the battle of their life, and they're weak. What a strange situation to be in physically when you're going to fight for your family. They have nothing left. Oh, by the way, since I didn't finish the story, and uh, those 400 men wiped out. It says they slaughtered the Amalekites. I mean, absolutely destroyed, regained everything that was lost. Not one thing was lost. Doesn't that sound a little like uh, 2,000 years ago? The three-day, if I perish, I perish test. Go gather together all the Jews that present in Shushan. This This is Esther speaking, Queen Esther. And fast you for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. Now wait till you hear me go into depth on this one a little more. This is so powerful. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And by the way, these are the same three days that we're going to look at when Jesus died. The three-day in the belly of the earth test. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And you could say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, first of all, if you study the story of Jonah, it's extremely fascinating. But you could make a very strong case, not that he just hung out in the belly of a whale, but that he died, and he went into the earth. You just had to read it, okay? Uh, Now, first of all, a whale could, or a big fish could go fairly close to the middle of the earth where we can't uh, now. But, I mean, we're talking such an extraordinary parallel with what took place at the cross and the three days that followed. And Jesus himself understood the parallel, and he spoke about it even when he was in his ministry. The three-day without sight, without food test. And this is Paul. So this is even after Jesus. And he, Paul, was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. See, this is, there's such a parallel in these three days of being made ready for the ministry, for being made ready for the steps that we have. But what are we being readied for? For battle. This is how God forms his army. The three days of Jesus. Now, most of us are familiar enough with the fact that Jesus rose again on the third day. Okay, so I think most of us are familiar with that, that there were three days of Jesus. But there were two different times with Jesus where Jesus sort of disappears right at the crux of the battle. Jesus just sort of goes. Right when you're expecting him to rise up and come in and conquer the Roman Empire... He goes and dies. And then he's buried three days. What? Where's our Messiah? Well, look at how he starts. And it came to pass. See, Jesus just disappears. Mary and Joseph can't find him. He just, he went dark. He just was gone all of a sudden. They looked everywhere. And it came to pass that after three days, isn't that strange? They found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. It's a foreshadow. 
Listen to Jesus speak. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Hmm. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After two, listen to the scripture in Hosea. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Okay? The Old Testament is giving us a pattern, a framework to understand one who will come. His name is Jesus. And this one who comes doesn't just fulfill the Messiah test. He matches with everything in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament speaks of this. Everything parallels, coordinates, correlates. When things go dark, Jesus showed us how to walk it. Okay, you want to see the lights go out on a human being? Welcome to the life of Jesus. The three-day-are-you-willing test. He says, not my will, but thine be done. Gethsemane lights out. You have yourself suffering anxiety at such a great level that he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Lights out. We have ourselves the challenge. This man is in agony. Are you willing, Jesus? Well, how about you? Are you willing? Jesus modeled this to perfection. And I want you to realize, you could say, I can't handle it. I can't even face what Jesus went through. Who is it that lives in you? Don't you know your position? Don't you understand the benefit of that position? The very God that went through this test is the very God that dwells within you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. The three-day are you willing test. The three-day if I perish, I perish test. How about Jesus? If I perish, I perish. What did he do? He was the intercessory lamb. He knew he was going to perish. Three-day, are you ready to try the impossible test? Who in their right mind wakes up in the morning of the 14th and, and aims his life in this direction? This is extraordinary. The weights that this man carried. Are you ready to try the impossible? It's the same question that is laid before us. Look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus accomplished. Are you ready to get up and take Canaan? There's 31 hostile empires, walled cities that reach up to the heavens. Giants live in that land. Are you ready to try the impossible? The three-day will you buckle test. You're going to be backed up to the Red Sea. I can promise you even right now, ahead of time, you'll be backed up to the Red Sea. You'll be in a narrow place. The strongest armies on this earth will be coming against you. How are you going to handle that moment? The three-day bitter waters test. The three-day, but I can't go another step. Remember Jesus? He had nothing left. He literally was collapsing under his cross. The three days, I can't go another step. The greatest victory was won. Just like in David's day, the greatest victory was won in weakness. The greatest victory ever achieved in the universal history was achieved in and through the weakest lamb. The three-day three in the belly of the earth test. This is, this is Jesus, by the way. The three days that changed everything. Now, 
there's some arguable points here. Some of the things about the crucifixion and the three days, three nights in, in the belly of the earth concept that Jesus says. If Jesus died on a Friday, well, it makes it sort of hard to count three days in there to Sunday morning. Now, I, I know people will do it because they'll say, you know, we had, it, all you need is one minute in one day and it will count as a full day. And that's fine. You're still going to have a tough time with the three days, three nights uh, side of things. And so there's all sorts of different things that I could say in regards to that because the Bible doesn't lie. And all the apostles were not tripping over this when they were announcing that he fulfilled it, okay? Just because we don't understand how days work in the Hebrew culture, we don't understand how there's high days, the Passover is a high day, which means it's a Sabbath day, okay? So even if he died on a Wednesday, he could have literally had a Sabbath on a Thursday, okay? And so in this concept, there was like probably a double Sabbath in there. But that's not the point of what we're going to talk about because there's nothing I can do to prove anything. All I can say is I know what the Word of God says. It's right, okay? So, and then when you get to 33 AD, we know that that's probably not exactly the year when Jesus died. We just know that he was 33 years old. However, he was most likely not born, you know, zero uh, AD. We don't know when he was born. There's all sorts of speculation on it, but you guys know what I mean by this, okay? I'm saying three days, and I'm saying AD 33, okay? So that's just a placeholder for us, but don't trip over that and say, well, I, he's making it sound like he knows. Oh, I know that it was Nisan 14. That's one thing I know. When he rose from the dead, well, we're having to guess it's three days, okay? So uh, 15, 16, 17th. But we don't know for sure how that worked. We just know it happened, okay? So you need to offer a little grace for the dates here. Three days that changed everything. But first, check out these three days. Nisan 14 through 17, 357 B.C. Aren't you excited? I mean, we're talking almost 400 years earlier, okay? Same days in the Hebrew calendar. First, this isn't one of those days, but this is the day before those three days. Nisan 13, 357 B.C. Haman casts lots to choose a date for the Jews' annihilation. The royal decree ordering the killing of all Jews. There is a death sentence hanging over the Jewish nation. Isn't that amazing? You see, most of us don't even know that this happened at this time because the date he picked was Adar 13, which is at the end of the year. That was the date when he was going to exterminate them. However, the date that he announced it and he cast lots, he threw, that's what Purim is. That's actually a celebration that the Jews have of the death of Haman and the foiling of the plot and what Esther accomplished, called Purim. Well, that's celebrated in Adar, the last month of the year. So, you know, it would be like February, March time. But in Nisan 13, in the spring of the year before, Haman cast lots to choose a date for the Jews' annihilation, the royal decree ordering the killing of all the Jews. Now, there's a decree of death over each and every one of us. There is a death sentence. An extermination is going to take place. Judgment is coming. Nisan 14. Mordecai calls on Jews to repent. The three-day fast ordered by Queen Esther. Esther makes the decision to risk her life and enter the king's presence. It's against the law. As it says with you know, the, the king back in the Syrian culture, if you entered his presence unbidden, it was the death penalty. 
So she is literally risking her life to stand in the gap for her people. Nisan 16, Queen Esther risks her life in standing before King Ahasuerus unbidden. She hosts the first wine party. Of all things, that's what it's called, the wine party, okay? With Ahasuerus and evil Haman. In the Hebrew culture, when, you, when they read the story of Esther on the day of Purim, they have these, uh, I forgot what they're called, but there's some kind of uh, musical instruments. Like, some, I forgot what, it's a hilarious name for it too. But whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they're all, all like, and they make a huge rumble. They hate the guy. He is the death sentence. He's symbolic of it. He is flesh. He's the symbol of everything that is destroying you. It's the principle of sin. And it is, has rightful decree over your life. The wages of it is death, and you're in covenant with it. But in comes Queen Esther. And then Nisan 17, it's the second wine party. Queen Esther's second wine party, the evil Haman's downfall, which is a great story, by the way. If you have never read Esther, oh, it is fantastic. Guess what? Haman built gallows, like a place to hang uh, Mordecai, his arch enemy Mordecai, who would not bow, bow down and serve him. He built these gallows to hang him on. On this day, guess who was hanged on the same gallows that he made for Mordecai? Haman. Jesus, they built a cross for Jesus. And guess what? Who ended up dying on it? Haman. They conspired to destroy the Messiah. And as he was pinned helpless upon a tree, somehow, someway, he reaches out and grabs the flesh, the old man by the scruff of the neck, and pulls him in. And the judgment of God falls upon our bitter enemy. He's been judged. The firstborn was judged. Okay, now back to the three days that changed everything. <laughs> Nisan 14 through 17, 33 AD. Remember where we started? We went through what this season of the year means. It's a season of creation. Well, this is a season of new creation. The earth was created. Well, how about this one? Jesus made all things new. He made a new creation. It's actually what the book of John is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's a parallel with Genesis. And it's basically saying, do you see it? And it was on a first day of the week that he rose again unto newness of life. He exited the ark, if you will. And springtime blossoms came forth. It's the time of new creation. Well, those three days, it was also the time of a new birth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all born and died in the first month. The time of the, it's the time of the death and the new birth of the patriarch of patriarchs, Jesus Christ. I mean, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are something special. Wait till you get Jesus. The patriarch of all patriarchs died and rose again unto newness of life. It's the new birth. Same three days. It was the time of final sacrifice. Not just the time of sacrifice, the time of final sacrifice. Isaac was bound, a ram provided, Passover, the paschal lamb offered all throughout Hebrew history that day. Nisan 14, Jesus comes strolling in as the paschal lamb. Jesus, the Passover lamb, dying on the 14th of Nisan. It was the time of divine intercession. The ram caught in the thicket. It was a ram that gave up its life to spare another. 
the paschal lamb inter- intervening at Passover. Esther interceding on behalf of the Jewish nation. Now, what do we see? Jesus giving up his life that we might live. He was the intervening ram caught in the thicket. It was the time of freedom from the shackles of sin and death. Well, Egyptian slavery was annulled in this exact same time frame. Haman's plot exposed and foiled in this exact same time frame. And freedom from the law of sin and death. Justification from the looming penalty. There's a decree, a royal decree over your life that you are doomed. But in the, this three-day period, that decree is removed and you are justified. That's actually what justification means. You're justified. You're cleared of the penalty. Haman is instead doomed, and you are cleared. Oh, the gospel. It was the time of judgment upon the firstborn, the flesh. The death angel in Egypt striking down the firstborn. Haman hung. Saul dies in battle. And the old man is crucified. It was the time of first fruits, the harvest, the barley harvest, the food for animals. Jesus is, it says in the New Testament, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. He is the food of God laid in a Jewish feeding trough, which is what a manger is. It's an animal's feeding trough, and he became food for the nations in those, that three-day period. It was the time of unprecedented purity, a lamb without blemish or spot is the way the Jews always have known it. No leaven allowed for seven days. Well, Jesus is the unleavened, unblemished, unspotted paschal lamb. It was the time of the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Remember in the previous list, it was the time of the Lamb. This is the time of the year when all lambs know it's coming. They can sense it in the air. Well, for the Lamb of God, it's always been Passover. A sacrifice is food and is shelter. Well, Jesus, the Lamb of God, a sacrifice for sin. God become food. And God become the clothing of righteousness for the dead in sin. It was the time of the Gentiles being grafted in. Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem at the inception of the barley harvest is a picture of the Gentiles arriving in this season. The door to the Gentiles opened up through the great cross work of Jesus. We have access into the commonwealth of Israel, into the promises of Israel through the door of Jesus. That's for us. Since there's only two Jewish people in here, this is huge for us. It was the time of a raised up tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness emerged at this time. Well, now we have the temple of God rebuilt in three days. The resurrection of the perfect tabernacle, Jesus Christ. It was the time of the coronation of the king of all kings. David was anointed king over Judah back in this time period. And Jesus exalted to the highest place, given the name above all names, and crowned as king of all kings. And it was the time when heaven went to war. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings Go forth to battle. Jesus went forth to battle. I know it seems strange that to go to battle he would be a lamb and he would be pinned mercilessly to two beams of wood. Not the best battle strategy. Not exactly sure if you were his counselor if you would have encouraged that. I know that I probably wouldn't have. Unless I could read the Bible first, know how it all turns out and say, okay, you seem to know what you're doing so I'll say yes, that's a good idea, God. I'm glad he doesn't ask us. We have no idea. There's a way that seems right unto man, but it leads unto death. And there's a way that seems right unto God, and that's the way that leads to life. And this is the way that seems right unto God. And it works! It set us free! The time when the king of kings went forth to battle. He went to war all 
by his lonesome. Now think about this. When you have Gideon and the army being diminished, if any one of us had participated in the redemption of mankind, guess what? We could have boasted. But God knew that we would think we saved ourselves by our own right arm. And so the only way that we could be saved was by his right arm. And he didn't just lop off 22,000. He didn't just lop off 31,700. He lopped off all 32,000. And all that stood there was the king himself. Our God went to battle in the spring. Nisan 14, AD 33, if you will. All by himself. And he took down all the powers of earth and hell. Now it's a strange thing because what we're about to get into is why he went to battle. Why did our king condescend to go to battle? To get for himself an army. Well, that's a funny way of getting an army. You go to battle. We were trapped. We were locked in the war chest of the enemy. And God came down and broke open the shackles that bound us to the powers of hell. And he set us free. Does he need us for battle? No. He wants us for battle. Our God can win whatever battle he wants all by his lonesome. He's already proven that. But now he's in the business of raising up an army. The building of the king's war machine out of Adam's dead bones. You guys know what scripture this is going to be referring to? Uh, before we get to Ezekiel 37, <laughs> Genesis 2-7. This is the first creation. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There was a breath that entered into Adam, and he became a living soul. I know, I'm just laying the foundation here, because I want you to realize, that was the first creation, the first Nisan, the first week. Now we have the second creation, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Nisan! The month of new creation. The month when kings go forth to battle. In Adam, all die. If you're in Adam, you die. Adam forsook life because he rebelled against God. He didn't heed God's word. He went his own way. And as a result, Adam was cut off from the presence of God. And when we were born in this earth, we were in Adam. And when we're in Adam, it says we die. I'm just glad that that's not the only part of that scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, Ezekiel 37. Listen closely to this because this is very, very important. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold... There were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Now, by the way, these are men's bones, which is disgusting. It's not just like a whole bunch of dinosaur bones out there. 
It's not just like some buffalo herd that died and we just see some bones bleached upon you know, the valley. There's actually a great number of bones of men. Now, when you see the bones of men, what do you know about them? Well, they once lived, but they have no life in them now. Bones are not alive. They're a sign of past life. But what Ezekiel has seen is a great valley full of dead bones, and they're very dry, which means they're long dead. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? What do you think? Can these bones live? Can that which once had life but no longer has it, it's forsaken it, it's dead. Can they live? Can bones live? Listen to Ezekiel's response. I love it. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. You'll notice, those of you that have been through Ellerslie, we talk about the gospel in two parts. We talk about being in Christ Jesus, and then we talk about Christ being in us. First, you must be in Christ. You must have clothing. You must have the skin, if you will. Because I don't know if you know who you are in this story, but you're a pile of dead bones, and you can offer no service to your king. Your general could say, take the field and win for me. Well, what are you going to do if you're a pile of dead, dry bones? You could wish all you want. You're not going anywhere. You can't be the soldier that you were called to be. You must have skin. You must have those bones brought together supernaturally and layered the way that only God can layer a body. You must have a covering. You must be in Christ Jesus. You must be in the skin. And then, as it says at the bottom, but there was no breath in them. It's not just enough to be in Christ. You must have Christ in you. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. New creation, right there prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. Nisan 14 to 17. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Oh, exceeding great army. Rise up to fight. The work has been done. The devil is defeated. 
three days have done their work. And we now live. We don't live by our own drive, our own determination, our own willpower. We live by the breath of God. That is our life. We are sustained not by our own grit and determination, but by God in us. We fight as an army, not in our own strength. It's not by might, not by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are a Gideon army. We are a bunch of woolly sheep. We are not fit for battle any more than dry, dead bones are fit for battle. But God has seen fit to make us ready. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Dead men's bones. Adam's race. Our bones are bleaching in that valley. It's pathetic. That's all we have to offer. A heap of nothingness. We don't have life. For through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. If by the one man's offense, Adam's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. In the same way that all men died because of that one man, so now all can live in and through that work of the cross on Nisan 14. The work has been done. Yes, Adam's work was done a long time ago, and that created all sorts of dominoes that you've been suffering under for all these years. If you're sick and tired of being a pile of dead bones, I don't blame you. There's actually hope for each and every one of us. Dry dead men's bones. It's a symbol of life forsaken long ago. It's a symbol of sin, the wages of which are death. It's a symbol of that which is wholly incapable of life. Bones can't make themselves come together. You don't have a hand to pick up one and bring it next to the other. And even if you did, say you had one hand flopping around, and then you had a whole bunch of bones, you don't have sinew, you don't have ligament, you don't have anything. You just got some dry, dead bones. You can't get life out of this. And even if you did cobble it all together, lean it up against a wall and put all these bones together, just sort of, sort of some funny heap, try and cover it with skin. Oh, good luck doing that one. You have no breath in it. There's no life there. Who gives life? Only God. You must become a new creation. Some of you have been in a church for many years of your life. But what you might be is a sack of bones. And you have no life in you. Well, you know what I would encourage you today is to get sick and tired of being a sack of bones. I want to encourage you that if you're interested in living, there is life to be had. And the same God that breathed life into Adam 6,000 years ago. And the same God who breathed that life back into Jesus' body 2,000 years ago is the same God who intends to breathe life into you so that you 
can be a, a part of this exceeding great army. Our king went forth to battle. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Okay, now as I read this, I want you to be the bones. Okay, so if you need to put your name in this to fully grasp this, do. Thus says the Lord God to Eric Ludi, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I want you to realize that's a fact to me. I know what it means to have the breath of God in me. There's a reason why I am so happy. There's a reason why I have so much strength to serve Jesus Christ. It's not because I figured out how to get these bones to work. It's that I gave up this pile of bones and I said, I'm dead without you. Take this pile of nothing. Dry dead bones. You know, that's what most of us are lugging around. We have a bag of our dry dead bones. And God's like, uh, can I have those dry dead bones? Hey, he said, my dry dead bones. How dare you, God? Boy, he's so selfish. People will call God selfish and egotistical. He's like, I need those bones. If God doesn't get those bones, he can't rebuild you. He can't make a new creation. You see, in Christ Jesus, old things are supposed to be passed away, which means your bag of dead bones passed away. All things are made new. And suddenly, that which was dead is now brought back to life by the living God himself. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Why would God do this? So that we would know that he is the Lord. He wants to remake you. He wants to transform you. I don't know what your personal story is, but ironically, it's not going to be very different from any of the rest of ours in here. We're just a pile of dry, dead bones, and when life begins, it's when we finally realize that our dry, dead bones are, are, can only be fixed by Jesus Christ. His work on that cross, that three-day work, is the three-day work that God wants to work in you. See, you can appropriate this message from all sorts of different angles. You can look at it from the level of being a man or a woman who is alive in Jesus Christ, that has the skin of Jesus on you and the breath of Jesus in you. And you could say, God, make me fit for when I'm, mar when I'm marched up to that narrow place in the Red Sea. Make me fit to respond correctly the way you did. Fill me with your life and enable me to live as you lived. And then we could take this message at the most simple level and say, I'm dead and I need life. And if you're dead and you're needing life, I tell you what, I know exactly where you need to go. You go to Jesus. Jesus is the one with the breath in his lungs. He's the one that is the word of God who will speak over your dead bones and cause them to rattle together. He's the one that will clothe you in himself. And when he clothes you in himself, it's like the equivalent of getting inside a plane. You're clothed in the plane, and wherever that plane goes now, you go. And he went to the cross 2,000 years ago. And his journey to the cross does its work for you. And that old man inside of you, that old selfish propensity inside of you, is crucified. Just as Haman was hung, your old man is crucified. And then Jesus went to the burial and he discarded the old man, buried him, 
And then he rose again to newness of life. And if you're in him, that newness of life is in you. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, as it says in Ephesians 2, so you sit in him at the right hand of the Father. All things are under his feet. And strangely, where are you located? Right there. In the position of authority. How would I get there? He's making you a soldier. He's making you fit to do the work of the kingdom here on earth. And he awakened his army. He has brought about a new creation. And breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet. An exceedingly great army. May it be said of us. Some of you have skin. That's what baptism is. When we go out to that lake and we do baptism, we're basically saying, I have the skin of Christ now. I've been baptized into his death and now I share in his life. My old man is no more and now I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And there's another, what's called a sacrament in the church. It's called communion. And that's when the very life of God enters in. So first of all, we enter into Christ and then Christ must enter into us. And that's where the great army comes from. Let's ask God to prepare us for the time of battle. This is the season when kings go forth to battle. Right now, this week, Friday of this week is Nisan 14. So it's literally this week that we have the lamb, the unblemished lamb that is being observed in our midst. And we are observing and meditating upon his cleanliness. Is he fit to be our sacrifice? You know what our rousing conclusion is? Oh, yes. He is without spot, without failure, without blemish. He is sufficient to meet the need and to be the final sacrifice on our behalf. Praise God. Father, oh, what you've done and oh, what you've scripted. May we behold with awe and wonder at your majesty throughout the ages. You have done it. You have written a story that befuddles us. It's extraordinary to see what you have done. And may each of us bend our knee before the living God today and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Thank you for going to battle. And thank you for your victory. Thank you for your purity. Thank you for your holiness. And thank you for your way, which is so different than our way. Your way is correct. And Lord Jesus, you allow us to be weak. And in and through our weakness, you show forth your strength. We praise the living God who has done the work, and he's done it well. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, 
please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellersley.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.